Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. There's a proposal being worked on to raise Ohio's minimum wage to $15 per hour by the start of 2026. A petition drive is underway to put it to a statewide vote next year. In a moment, I'll talk with Michael Shields with Policy Matters Ohio, who's looked into wage policies. In the second half hour, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics. The legislative debate that involves Ohio's constitution and reproductive rights, plus high-tech law enforcement, we go one-on-one with one of the minds trying to instill trust and transparency with technology. Sports gambling is in our state. Clay Gordon joins us to follow the money and ask where all that cash is going. And in about 55 minutes, our final segment is also courtesy of 10TV. Yolanda Harris talked with Fritz the Night Owl and aired a segment on the nightly news this past week. We'll present that four-minute segment at the end of the hour. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Michael Shields, who is a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. How you doing? Glad to be here. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about Policy Matters Ohio. Sure. Policy Matters Ohio is a research organization focused on building an Ohio economy where everybody can thrive. We do that through research and advocacy around public policies. And uh, specifically, I I work on job quality. I I, I work on issues like uh, the minimum wage, making sure that people get paid for all of the hours that they work, uh, making sure that we have robust systems in place like unemployment compensation. Um, But... uh, that, that's what we do. We work in a whole lot of different areas of um, having policies in place that uh, make sure everybody's able to, to thrive in, in terms of their economic lives. And you've done a lot of study over the years about the minimum wage. There's an effort right now, a signature drive going on now, to try to put it on the ballot in November of next year that would ask Ohioans to raise the minimum wage eventually to $15 by 2026. That's right. And what is your take on that? Yeah, that's that's a good idea. Um, we should uh, definitely be reevaluating our minimum wage, and it needs to be significantly higher. Uh, you know, one of the things that I look at every year right around Labor Day is how um, Ohio working people are, are uh, faring in terms of uh, both how productive they are when they go to work and, and, and also uh, wages, obviously, is a big uh, component of uh, our, uh, our, our lives with respect to work. So um, what we know is that Working people in Ohio have become more productive than ever before. Um, it's, and it, this is true almost every year, unless we're in a recession, it's generally true, that um, working people have produced more wealth uh, this past year than ever before in history. Um, we look at that trend and, and also the wage trend going all the way back to 1979. This is as data are. And um, what we know is that uh, even though uh, working people cre- create more and more wealth uh, almost every single year, for our economy and for their employers, it's not being reflected in their pay. That's pretty pretty much across the board until you get to the very, very highest earners. Uh, wages have been held really flat. But when we're uh, starting to talk about the lowest paid workers, people who are making the minimum wage or just a little bit more than that, uh, wages have actually been pushed down. So the, the minimum wage today in Ohio is $10.10 an hour. Uh, federally, it's seven twenty-five. The highest minimum wage that we have had on record was $14 an hour. That was the federal minimum wage passed in 1968. Of course, I'm, I'm adjusting for inflation. Right. But it would be worth about $14 an hour uh, in today's terms. And so what that means is that wages have been pushed down um, nationally by, by almost half uh, here in Ohio because voters enacted a, a minimum wage uh, that is now our, our 1010 wage 
um, back in 2006, our wage is a bit higher, but it's still lower by about a third than the the highest wage we've had on record. So working people at the bottom of the pay scale have had their wages pushed down at a time when, uh, you know, they're more educated, they're more productive, they're doing more than ever before. And that new wealth, that growth is, is really being largely captured by the top. I wonder if some of the opposition, for instance, in Congress, the vast majority of them, I would say, are at least 50 years old, and a lot of them are in their 60s and 70s. And so do you think that there's a notion among a lot of those folks that if they think, well, wait a minute, somebody working at Arby's or Wendy's making 30, 30 grand or more a year, we can't have that. You think it's kind of an old school thought in that way that's part of the opposition? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, you'd have to talk with uh, the opposition about uh, their take, but, uh, you know, the... The fact of the matter is the cost of living is a real cost, and and that's an expense that people take on in order to go to work and, and, uh, you know, to provide services um, or to to make things uh, for their employers, right? The the cost to live in your community, to have transportation to work, to to be able to, uh, you know, to eat and and cover all of your, your basic needs, those are fundamental things. And those are costs that working people incur in, able to be, in order to be able to show up to work and do the job. So this is a real cost. You know, we don't hear uh, employers making, you know, similar, you know, complaints about things like, well, you know, we, we shouldn't have to pay the full cost of the fuel that we use or the, the rent for our building or, or what have you. We understand that those costs are uh, inputs. They're, they're part of the cost of doing business. Um, and, and wages are no different. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, sometimes the working people are, are not paid a wage that really does cover all of the, the cost of living. So that's something that needs to change. Yeah, there's a, there's a notion that if you uh, are an employer, you sort of have a responsibility to provide your worker with a livable wage. And yet recently I talked to John Barker, who heads the Ohio Restaurant Association. He's of the belief that this sort of minimum wage uh, increase would be devastating to the restaurant industry. And, and one of the things that he said was for those who work at traditional sit-down restaurants, not, not the fast food chains, but the bona fide, you know, traditional restaurant, they make an average of $27 an hour and a livable wage, whereas his argument is that for the fast food places, those are more training grounds for young workers or inexperienced workers that are not meant to, you know, be career jobs. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where he is getting his data um, when we look at um, data from a survey like the Occupational Employment Statistics, um, the Current Population Survey, things that are, um, you know, legitimate surveys that are are collected by the Census Bureau or the Bureau of Labor Statistics. What we learn is that um, waiters and waitresses are among the lowest paid uh, in Ohio. They're, They're typically paid... Uh, at, at a wage below the poverty level uh, for, for a small family. Um, so, you know, I, I've never seen any statistics um, that, that would uh, comport with, with what you just quoted there. But, uh, you know, when, when we look at uh, real data from, from credible sources, uh, we know that uh, people in the restaurant industry are, are paid among the, the lowest in, uh, in the state. So that's got to be addressed. And, you know, we, we also know the reason for that, right? Um, and a big part of it is because right now, Ohio allows employers of tipped workers to claim what's called a, a tip credit, uh, to pay them a minimum wage as little as half the minimum wage. So the regular minimum wage is $10.10 an hour this year in Ohio. And uh, 
you earn tips as part of your pay, uh, your employer is allowed to pay you as little as $5.05. Uh, they're supposed to make sure that um, people who are uh, earning tips are making at least a full 1010 um, between their tips and, and wages combined. But we also know as a practical matter that that's not always happening. Uh, so we've, we've done other research. I've, I did a report this past spring that uh, found that there are about 213,000 cases of wage theft uh, in the, the state of Ohio every single year just from minimum wage not payment. There are other kinds of wage theft, you know, things like just not paying for all the hours that somebody works or not paying time and a half for overtime, things like that. But we can measure uh, wage theft by minimum wage non-payment, and nearly half of those cases are in the leisure and hospitality industry where you have huge numbers of people who are working for tips, and if their employers aren't making sure that they're paid the full minimum wage, that their tips are, are making up any gap or shortfall there, it, it's sort of left to working people to, to know and assert their rights, and, and that's a system that is just primed for, for uh, abuse, and, and unfortunately, we see a whole lot of workers who are paid less than the minimum wage because of that setup. You know, and the solution is that we need to implement a minimum wage that covers the cost of living and that applies to everybody, um, you know, so the tips would, would be um, on top of that, any tips that, that working people receive. Talking with Michael Shields, he's a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. Well, what about John Barker's other point that fast food restaurants are not career jobs, they're, they're training ground for people to acclimate themselves to the workplace and, and, you know, maybe a higher minimum wage wouldn't apply to somebody like that? Well, the minimum wage should apply to every job, right? Because um, we, we touched on this already. The, the cost of living is the cost that people incur in, able to be, in order to be able to, to go to work and do their job, right? So if an employer is not paying that full cost, then their operating costs are being effectively subsidized by something. Right. Um, so it, it might be um, our social safety net. It might be, um, you know, the, the help of uh, family members or, uh, you know, charitable organizations, something like that. But the bottom line is whatever it costs you to live is what it costs you in order to have your job and to go to work. So those are business expenses. Those are real costs. Um, and, and, you know, because that's a, an actual cost, it's, it's something that, um, companies really should and, and need to be paying for. The statistic you gave earlier about the minimum wage, the effective minimum wage at today's costs, $14 an hour in 1968. That's back in the days when, you know, most small towns in Ohio had uh, typically had a, a big anchoring factory in town that paid well. Is that part of the reason that would have put those numbers into that category, you think? So that's the minimum wage. That's that's not the, the average wage. Um, you make a really good point. Um, you know, the... the Industrial mix that, that we have is a uh, factor in, in having high quality jobs that, that pay a good wage and um, you know help somebody to support a family. Um, our loss of manufacturing has been uh, has presented challenges, you know, and, and, and is one of the factors that has kept wages pretty close to flat over the last couple of decades in, in Ohio, almost four decades actually. But uh, you know, there's nothing fundamental about having a factory job that makes that a well-paying job, right? One of the, the reasons that we have that is because we traditionally have had high union density um, in our, our manufacturing industry. So uh, I am encouraged by the fact that we see more union organizing in the service sector and, and in uh, fast food and, and restaurant work. Um, hopefully that is a trend that will continue. Uh, 
um, because I think it really underscores the fact that, um, you know, it's, it, it takes more than this is kind of one of our core principles, right? In, in the United States, we have this idea that, uh, you know, you go to work, you do a good job, maybe get a little extra education, and that's the way to thrive. That's the path to success, and it's a, it's a way that, um, you know, everybody should be able to thrive. Um, that sort of contract has been starting to break down, um, and I think that what we've learned is that it's conditional, right? It's, it's also, it's not simply about doing a good job at work. Working people are doing their part. In, in fact, they're doing it better than ever. But there's a component of that that comes down to bargaining power. Um, and that's something that uh, working people can improve um, when, when they join together in their workplace and form a union. But it's also something that lawmakers need to have their eye on, right? Because there, there's a real um, imbalance in the, the bargaining power that working people bring to the labor market versus their employers. And uh, we need policies. We need public policies that help to restore that balance. Having a minimum wage in place that meets the cost of living is foundational to that. Well, what about the timing of all this, though? You know, I'm thinking, again, I keep thinking of fast food places as uh, typical minimum wage jobs in Ohio. If people start making 15 bucks an hour, even in the small towns, because I know they make that in the bigger cities now in some of these places... That might increase the cost of food, which has already kind of skyrocketed in the last couple of years. So would that be bad timing now to have all this happen and maybe have prices go up even higher than they already have of late? You know, actually, corporations have responded to the opportunity, really, that has been afforded by um, having some inflation, right? We People have expected and tolerated inflation um, that we haven't seen since the 1980s over these last two years. Again, it's starting to come down, but um, you know, we, we had inflation rates uh, over 9%. So we, we've had really high inflation uh, for several months, and people sort of assimilated that into their expectations of what, it, what it's going to be like to go out into the economy and buy things. Corporations have taken advantage of that. Um, you know, this is this figure is a little bit dated now, but early in um, the, the pandemic, there, there was a window of time in which corporate profits were making up more than half the cost of inflation. It got as high as 54%. Wages at that time were also contributing about 8% to the increase in prices. And what that means when profits are making up more than half is that companies have not only priced in uh, their own increased operating costs and pass that on to consumers. They've actually taken advantage of the opportunity to effectively price gouge, to, to raise their prices over and above um, what new costs they've taken on to increase their profits. Hmm. So, I mean, I think it really underscores the fact that, um, you know, companies are going to raise their prices when and if they can. They've already shown us that. They've already done it. They've used the opportunity to boost their profits. We have to make sure that, you know, people who are going to work, um, you know, doing their jobs and, and, and just trying to cover the basics are able to do that. Um, and having a wage that reflects the, the cost of living and the value of work, you know, that's the other thing. We're, one of the things that we really learned from this um, experience with the, the COVID pandemic is how much we rely on the work of some of the folks who are paid among the very, very lowest um, you know, childcare workers who are keeping our kids safe so that we can get back to work, uh, the grocery store stockers who are keeping the shelves stocked, you know, the people who, um, 
cared for us when we were sick, nursed us back to health. Uh, you know, these are people whose work is incredibly valuable to all of us and it need to be paid a wage that reflects that. Is that gonna drive inflation? You know, we've already had inflation driven by other things. This is an issue that we have to resolve and it's, you know, um, with wages making up a tiny fraction of uh, price increases overall, working people will be made far better off by having wages that reflect the cost of living, um, you know, w without, um, you know, e even in light of the fact that um, usually you, de you do see a little bit of inflationary pressure that, that reflects a small portion of increased wages, we've already seen the inflation without the wages. Now it's time to get the wages up to speed. This is something that would help people to, to meet the cost of living. You know, we've had uh, a dozen states now in D.C. pass a, a minimum wage of $15 or higher already. Uh, those are states where about four in 10 uh, working people in the United States live. So, you know, this is something that has been underway already before inflation was as high as it has been uh, these last two years. Inflation actually is, is coming down just a, a bit now. The, the most recent figure on that dropped a full percentage point to, to 5%. So that's encouraging. But, um, you know, the reality is that high inflation actually devalues uh, what it means to be paid $15 an hour. Um, so it's, it's something that is important. It's been needed for a long time. Um, and uh, the, the fact that we've had this high inflation, if anything, makes that even more urgent. And one of the benefits of a, a, a huge benefit to increasing the minimum wage would be virtually all of that money goes right back into the economy. These are folks that are not saving money. They're spending it. That's true. Um, when you direct uh, more income in any kind, and, and certainly wages are a, a big part and usually the majority of uh, income for uh, people at uh, this uh, in, in this area in the, the earnings uh, spectrum, um, when the lowest paid people are uh, re receive more money, they tend to spend most or all of it. So um, that does drive our economy. Um, that uh, you know that's that's something that helps people cover basic needs. And when people's spending is um, sustained or, or boosted in that way, that's that's good economy-wide. It creates more jobs. It creates more business revenue. So there are, are uh, tremendous positive uh, impacts that you see from that. Just a couple of minutes to go here with Michael Shields. He's a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. This just kind of popped into my head a couple of days ago when I was thinking about doing this interview with you. I was looking online just kind of at different statistics, and I came across that the governor of Ohio ranks 16th in the U.S. in terms of his salary. I think it's about 164000 This might be a little bit outdated. And Ohio was 38th highest in median income. And I'm wondering, would it ever make sense to have a policy that would make the governor and the legislature's salaries reflect how the state's workers rank nationally? <laughs> you know, that's not something that I've ever really given thought to. I mean, my, my general view on public officials' salaries is that they should be high enough that, um, it, that it's not a limiting factor in terms of who can be a public official, right? We, we don't want public official salaries to be so low that only wealthy people can hold public offices. Right. But, you know, I, 
I think you said 168,000. I mean, that's a far cry from that. I don't know. Um, I, uh, I I don't know that this is, um, you know, I, <laughs> having robust wages to me is not conditional on what the governor or any other public official is paid in Ohio. It's it's just a, a common sense policy that we need to have. Uh, you know, we, we need uh, a minimum wage that meets the cost of living for every person who works. Anything else you want to add on this, uh, on the uh, minimum wage and, and what folks should be looking for going forward on this, Michael? Sure. Um, you know, I've done some research on this uh, throughout the years. The most recent report that I did on it is now about two years old. So we've seen some big changes to our labor market as a result of it. And uh, I'm sure that this is a question that bears looking at again. Um, but we do know that, um, you know, the last time we looked at this question, what, uh, who would benefit from raising Ohio's minimum wage to $15 an hour? That policy would also, the, the one that I, I did some research on, uh, would also be effective by year 2026. That makes a difference, of course, because of inflation. And we learned at that time that more than one and a half million Ohio working people would benefit from a $15 minimum wage effective by 2026. Um, you know, the labor market looks a little different um, over the the last couple of years because of the, the disruptions we've seen from, from COVID-19. Um, so those numbers are a little bit ballpark now, um, but we know that there's still going to be very substantial uh, numbers of people who benefit um, if we do implement a $15 minimum wage. And we also know that um, those benefits accrue, uh, especially to, to the working people who need them most because their wages have been held down more. Um, so, you know, six in 10 of those uh, working people are women, uh, a, a disproportionate number are um, Ohioans of color, uh, you know, people who have had fewer opportunities um, to, you know, have the, the higher quality jobs that, uh, that pay really robust wages are the people who would benefit the most from a policy like this. So it will make our labor market more fair. Uh, this is a really important step for Ohio and, and something that we, um, we've needed for a long time is uh, to, to pass a minimum wage that reflects the cost of living and, and really um, respects the value of work that uh, the, people are, uh, the people doing uh, these jobs, some of the lowest paid jobs are doing. It's really going to be interesting, and the timing is interesting, too, because if this does make it to the November ballot next year, that's during the presidential election, so then you've got maybe unions and, and the political parties really actively involved in this as well, because it's one of those wedge issues. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and certainly, you know, organized labor is always um, focused on um, how to to make job quality better. Um, you know, they heavily supported the last uh, ballot initiative that uh, Ohio had to raise the minimum wage. That was back in, in uh, 2006. So, um, yeah, I mean, there, there are, are a lot of uh, stakeholders, especially um, you know, working people and the, the organizations that uh, represent workers um, are are, are going to be very interested in this, I'm, I'm sure. Michael, where can people see your research online? Policymattersohio.org. Okay. Uh, Michael Shields, he's a researcher, Policy Matters Ohio. Thanks so much for the information today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. 
You want to feel important. You want to be a part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits. Already receiving benefits? Use your account to change your address, set up or change direct deposit, get a proof of income letter, and more. In most states, you can also request a replacement Social Security card. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov slash myaccount. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Right now, our country feels divided, but there's a place where people are coming together. I got to tell you, I was nervous to talk to someone so different than me. Me too, but I'm glad we are. Love Has No Labels and One Small Step are helping people with different political views, beliefs, and life experiences come together through conversation, and it feels good. Wow, your story is so... uh, Interesting. Yeah. When people actually sit down, talk, and listen to one another, they can break down boundaries and connect as human beings. At lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step, you can listen to amazing, life-changing conversations and find simple tools to start a conversation of your own. I know one thing. This conversation gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope, too. Take a step toward bringing our country and your community together by having the courage to start a conversation at lovehasnolabels.com slash one small step. A message from StoryCorps, Love Has No Labels, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Keeping the trains on the tracks. Coming up on Face the State, the CEO of Norfolk Southern speaks with lawmakers at the Ohio State House. Plus, high-tech law enforcement. We'll talk with an Ohioan whose ideas got the intention of the White House. This is outrageous. And why lawmakers stormed out of a hearing at the State House. Face the State begins now. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 11.30 on 10 TV. The CEO of the Norfolk Southern Railway faced state lawmakers. It's been more than two and a half months since a train derailed in East Palestine, spilling toxic chemicals, upending that town's way of life. Good morning. We thank you for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. 10 TV's Amy Steigerwald was there as Ohio lawmakers grilled Alan Shaw at the State House. He faced questions from the Select Committee on Rail Safety, which is reviewing the derailment. 
For more than an hour, Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw stood before the Ohio Senate Rail Safety Panel, explaining what went wrong in East Palestine on February 3rd and how he's working to fix it. And we are making tremendous progress. We've hauled over 27,000 tons of soil off-site, over 12 million gallons of water off-site. Shaw answered questions from lawmakers, some of whom have roots in East Palestine, about soil removal, staffing numbers, and the possibility of rerouting trains with hazardous materials on board. Another big question centered around supporting two-person crews on all trains, something many lawmakers are calling for to improve rail safety. But Shaw says there is no data between crew size and derailments. And at this point, I have not seen any data that provides a direct link between crew size and derailments. Shaw expressed his support of the Railway Safety Act, co-sponsored by Senator Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, which would enhance procedures surrounding the transportation of hazardous materials. Shaw pointed out any advancements to rail safety is something that's going to have to be an entire industry-wide change and improvement, which he is in support of and plans to take to D.C. in the very near future. In Columbus, Amy Snuggerwald, 10TV News. This week, we talked with one of the senators behind the Rail Safety Act. Senator J.D. Vance says he was really frustrated with the pace of the cleanup following the derailment. But he says now it seems like that pace of cleanup has picked up. Just this week, Norfolk Southern said it had finished removing contaminated soil from the south track. But Senator Vance says now that it's out of the ground, it needs to get into the proper waste disposal facilities. Norfolk Southern says it has removed more than 25,000 tons of soil and 12 million gallons of water from that site in East Palestine. Well, I was really frustrated by the pace of the cleanup. For a long time, you had this toxic chemicals basically just sitting in the dirt in East Palestine. I'm glad that they've now hastened the pace of the cleanup. You've got to get this stuff out of East Palestine. And that's really where we are on the next phase of the cleanup is we've got to make sure now that it's out of the ground, that it gets out of East Palestine and into the proper waste disposal facilities. And I, I'm optimistic that that process is proceeding. I'm still a little frustrated that it's not going as quickly as it should. But that, that, that to me is where we really are in this cleanup is we got to get this stuff out of East Palestine and give the residents there some confidence that they can go back to their life. And you can't do that really while you've still got toxic chemicals there sitting in their, in their community. And we also spoke with Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, who's working with Senator Vance to keep the rail safety legislation moving forward. Senator Vance and I introduced this bipartisan bill. We've got a number of co-sponsors in both parties. Uh, we have a commitment that every Democrat's going to vote for it. We need to get a dozen Republicans or so. We're working on that. Uh, the Speaker of the House, we've got to get it through there. The Speaker of the House is, frankly, too close to the railroad lobby, so we need to keep pressure on him. President Biden is committed to signing the bill if we get it to his desk. So we know what we have to do. We also know the railroad lobby um, that's how strong they are, some of the most powerful lobbyists in the, in the country. Uh, we also know that um, they took, they, they cut a third of their workforce in, in, in the last 10 years and gave huge stock buybacks to their executives. Following that Wall Street model, you cut employees, your stock price goes up. Uh, we're keeping the heat and the light and the pressure on Norfolk Southern as we pass this bill and as we, make, as we push Norfolk Southern to do the right thing for the citizens of East Palestine. Senator Brown visited East Palestine to continue to push for Norfolk Southern to cover the cost of medical expenses associated with that toxic train derailment. 
Transparency and trust are becoming critical in law enforcement across the country, including here in Columbus. Optimum Tech is a minority-owned company that works with the city of Columbus to provide law enforcement software. Greg Davda, who works with this business, was just invited to the White House this month to talk about technology related to criminal justice. He also discussed how to collect better data and ensure greater transparency in policing. A version of their record management system is hosted by the Ohio Attorney General's office. Recently, Davda met with Mayor Andrew Ginther. Davda says his business is in the running to assist the city's new Office of Violence Prevention. When you think of outcomes you want in the cruiser when you're typing a report or in the office when you're typing a report or creating statistics or visuals like analytic models, you want ways to shorten the time frame to get mm-hmm. the end result as well as make it as easy as possible. Like a lot of industries, public safety, the people on the street, right, that are delivering the service to the communities mm-hmm. are sometimes overwhelmed with everything that's going on or perhaps aren't the most computer literate a lot of times so you have to make it um easy like the easy button gotta make it easy enough to use mm-hmm. but complicated enough that you're getting all the information and data you mm-hmm. still have three to four percent of your criminal population that's creating essentially 60 70 percent of your crime in the ju- local jurisdiction so that that data that that percentage stayed consistent across the board mm-hmm. i think what you have now is more sophisticated systems at the public safety level, right? That create more, what I'll say, more sophisticated criminals, right? You know, one's always trying to stay ahead of the other. And Greg Davda is the chief marketing officer of the company. It's a minority-owned firm. And this technology also allows law enforcement to better map out crime and other trends in the community. So we'll be watching that. Davda says that the mayor is highly focused on transparency in law enforcement. And we did recently sit down with Mayor Ginther and the newly appointed head of the Office of Violence Prevention, Rena Schock. What will you do to prevent crime? Because it seems like it's just so rampant and so random. Sure. So if you really look into the statistics, it can be random. Most of it is not. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of it is led by some other type of factor that's playing into it. And of course, I don't have to tell you that crime is multifaceted and somebody can be participating in a criminal act for a host of reasons, Mm -hmm. uh, most of which I have learned and spent a great deal of time with over the years, learning exactly what motivates or what causes somebody to be justice involved particularly in the criminal justice system. And so, in my opinion, prevention really looks like this agency helping to coordinate all city anti-violence programming to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then we hope to um, build relationships with our community, our community-based organizations, our nonprofits, our members of the community who are just trying to do this work themselves so that we're all on the same page. And you can see the full interview on 10tv.com slash face the state. Well, just this week, the city of Columbus named a new public safety director. Her name is Kate Bashotti, and she used to work in Mayor Andrew Ginther's office as his deputy chief of staff. 10TV's Richard Solomon sat down with her earlier this week to talk about her goals in this new role. As the city of Columbus continues to grow, so does the call for public safety. A call that Kate Pashati is the newest to answer as the city's newly appointed director of public safety. I've had a long journey um, that has all culminated in where I am right now, and I think it's uh, just kind of the perfect place for me to use all of my experiences. And this appointment comes at a crucial time as the city navigates through ending gun violence and youth crime. The announcement 
comforting news to Pastor Tim Aarons, pastor of First Congregational Church. I've, I've known Kate Pashati for a good number of years. He says the new safety director has good qualities of a leader, one who listens and understands. This is a great time for someone who understands the ins and outs of the city to implement programs that are that are coming round now. One of those programs Pashati is focused on is Project Moonlight. This was a part of the city's plan to add 22 mobile lights and cameras and add more officers to parks and community centers around the city. In her new position, she'll oversee more than 3,700 uniformed and civilian employees. She's working to build the community's trust. You know, the way to build our trust, man, is getting out and getting involved. Um, we need to physically see you and, and knowing that you are here for us. Ralph Carter is the founder of We Are Linden. He says he's hoping to see the new director improve the relationship between police and the black community. Oh, that is a good blueprint to start from um, to see what we're dealing with, uh, to be out there and being boots on the ground with us and knowing that you are not just uh, coming from behind the desk. And leading the city in the right direction won't happen overnight. But Pashati tells me she's ready. I'm willing to go anywhere and talk to anyone that may have their doubts, um, but I'm ready to do this job um, and move the city forward. That was 10TV's Richard Solomon reporting. Pashati says her biggest challenge is filling the shoes of other great leaders who served as directors before her. At the State House, a plan to ask Ohio voters to require 60% approval for constitutional amendments is moving forward. That's despite fierce opposition from Democrats. Watch this clip from the State House News Journal. This is outrageous. Ohio House Democrats walked out on a vote on House Joint Resolution 1, or HJR 1. This would make it harder to amend Ohio's Constitution on an August special election ballot. And it's happening three months before a reproductive rights amendment is likely to be before voters. Also, the State House members of the LGBTQ plus community came together to push back against two pieces of legislation. of opponents to two bills made their voices heard inside the state house. One piece of legislation would prevent trans athletes from playing with teams that are consistent with their gender identity. The other would ban gender affirming care for children. Still ahead this morning, a visit from the country's top education official. What the U.S. Secretary of Education told Columbus City Schools and the race for U.S. Senate, the Republican who's entering the ring. But first, show me the money. Consumer 10 tracks where the cash from sports betting is really going. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Every two minutes, a woman in the U.S. is diagnosed with breast cancer. And in that split second, her life changes forever. The toll of breast cancer is great. The need to support those who are battling the disease today is even greater. We're fighting alongside patients because we know one moment can change a lifetime. United by hope, we can end breast cancer. Join our fight. Save lives. Hey, this is Grace Gostad. 
I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. We often hear the phrase, follow the money. 10TV's Clay Gordon recently tried to do just that with sports betting. He found it might not be as easy as it sounds. The first two months of legalized sports gaming pulled in $1.75 billion to Ohio casinos and sports books, which means Ohio will get about $29 million. We had a pretty smooth and successful launch uh, from the commission's perspective. We had 16 online mobile operators launch and 13 uh, in-person retail locations launch. It was the largest simultaneous launch of sports gaming in the U.S. Um, and one of the largest expansions of gaming in Ohio's history. Revenue from kiosks at restaurants, bars, and retail stores 178,000 in the first two months. Here's where the money will go, according to the Office of Budget and Management. Half a percent of license fee revenue will go to the Department of Veterans Services for supplies and maintenance at the Ohio Veterans Home in Georgetown and Sandusky. 100% of gaming tax revenue and 99.5% of license fee revenues will be held in the Sports Gaming Revenue Fund. It will then flow to the Tax Refund Fund and the Sports Gaming Tax Administration Fund to reimburse expenses. The remaining 98% will be distributed to the Sports Gaming Profits Education Fund. Spell that out for us. What's that going to look like one day? Do you know? So I don't know. Those funds um, are appropriated by the members of the General Assembly, and so we will have to wait and see from them You know what, how they choose to spend those funds. Consumer 10 reached out to OBM for a timeline. A spokesperson says the various funds are pending in the fiscal year 2024-2025 budget. 2% of the sports gaming tax revenue is earmarked for the Problem Sports Gaming Fund. What really is the need in our state right now? Where do you think those dollars would be best used? We know just from our own research that there's pockets of Ohio that really don't have access to clinical care for, for gambling treatment. So that's certainly a, a top priority. And then also just looking 
at making sure that counselors are trained, that prevention professionals are trained, as well as operators to really know how to recognize those gambling problems when they start early. Is it a concern for you that that infrastructure is not complete yet before this has rolled out? I think once they have time to really assess where they're at with those dollars, especially with that 2%, um, they'll make good decisions into how how to utilize those funds and also listen to others. Those decisions will ultimately determine when sports gambling revenue will be paid out. But organizations will have to wait until the budget is passed on July 1st. All right, Clay Gordon joining us here on Face the State this morning. Thank you so much for Good joining us. I've got lots of questions sure. because we heard a lot of this, it seems, when the lottery came to the state. It was yes. going to education. What made you first decide you wanted to look into this? Well, you remember when uh, sports gambling was really ramping up towards January 1st, and, I mean, every single commercial was a sports gambling every commercial. Single, yeah. and, and then we started learning right after that a couple of these sports books that were launching and operating here in Ohio we're starting to get fined and sanctioned. So my first question is, why? Why was that happening? And then how much were they getting sanctioned and where was that money going? And we actually learned this week that there's been five sports operating books that have been um, fined so far. The last one, that was for a group called Play Up, which they actually got fined about $90,000 for um, potential illegal gaming activity. And I think the big headline from this week was that uh, they can't reapply for a license out for four years. Oh, wow. That was the biggest headline I've seen so far with these mm-hmm. sports fines. Uh, the four others, you know, we're talking like BetGM, MGM, Caesars, um, DraftKings, mm-hmm. Barstool, we've heard those names before. Yeah. Um, most of them got dinged for some kind of bad advertising practices. So, um, they range in fines from one hundred and fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Some got uh, dinged for uh, advertising to uh, child, uh, kids under twenty one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, it really was a range of it. All of them have settled with the casino commission, and but the state had basically got about one point one million dollars in fines alone from the uh-huh. launch of sports gambling here in the state. So you've mentioned the ads, and folks did see a lot of the ads sure. on our air. I mean, there's one with you know big star like Jamie yeah. Foxx. So what was it about the ads? What are, is there something that we should be listening for? Yeah, actually, the Jamie Foxx one is a great example because I think they say it's a no sweat first bet. I think that's their uh, mm-hmm. their their sounds motto there. Good. Yeah, it sounds good. But I think they started rolling out the, uh, terms like that because they were saying free bets in Ohio. So you get free bets, you get two hundred dollars in, in free bets. Well, there is no such thing as a free bet, mm-hmm. and that uh, violates Ohio law. And um, what the commission told me was this wasn't uh, an overstep by some of these sports books. This was mainly uh, a mistake from the advertising companies that they hired. They, didn't, they weren't aware of Ohio's rules because we have more strict rules than mm-hmm. other states that have launched this. So um, it was kind of like an, an oopsie moment. Right. Um, a lot of those uh, sports books you know, canceled their contracts with some of these advertisers because you know, it cost them a pretty penny. I, I'm pretty sure DraftKings was fined uh, half a million dollars mm-hmm. in total. So mm-hmm. that's... Uh, that's, that's a lot of money for just getting dinged right off the bat. And you and I have had these conversations in, in the office. I mean, when you say something like free bets, free monies, especially with younger, the younger generation, you talk about problem betting. Yep. Um, are you learning more about how they're trying to protect that group? It, well, as I learned, too, there's pockets of the state that are that are more educated with problem gambling than mm-hmm. others. And I, I, the Problem Sports uh, Gaming Network there was telling us that that's where some of the money should be funneled, um, and, and that will help. But again, we're not going to know this until they start talking about the fiscal year budget uh, in July. Mm-hmm. So um, that we're going to continue to follow this. Um, but, you know, the state is $1.7 billion made off of it, and the state's going to get about $29 million. And that's just an estimation. 
Wow. So we don't really know yet. So mm -hmm. um, we're working on this, and it's get, the the revenues get reported the last day of every month. So okay. every month we got a new story, Tracy. All right, and so that means you'll come back. I'll be back. All right, anytime. All right, thank you, Clay. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about education in Ohio. Coming up, the visit from the U.S. Secretary of Education to Columbus City Schools, plus an early graduation. We're going to take you to the ceremony for the Global Scholars Diploma. has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My, my son shot his brother. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back to Face the State. A Cleveland businessman, Bernie Moreno, announced his run for an Ohio U.S. Senate seat. This is his second attempt. He's vying for the chance to take on Democratic U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown in 2024. It makes him the second Republican to enter the race. We talked with Moreno earlier this week after he made his announcement. I'm getting into the race because we have career politicians, insiders that have put this country on a cliff. We need outsiders, people who have real practical business experience to actually represent the people of Ohio. I don't think it's going to be a messy primary. I think we're going to have to get all Republicans united to beat defeat Sherrod Brown. So I know the media is cheering for a messy primary. I know Sherrod Brown's cheering for a messy primary. But I think this ends up being a two-person two -person race with a very, very different views. You may remember Moreno ran for the Republican nomination in 2022, but he dropped out after a private meeting with former President Donald Trump. The race is expected to draw another spirited GOP primary as Republicans try to unseat Senator Brown, who's among the Democrats defending seats in states carried by former President Trump back in 2020. The Ohio Democratic Party responded with this statement, quote, the Republican slugfest for Ohio's Senate seat is getting more crowded, chaotic and messy by the day. With a year of nasty mudslinging ahead, it's clear that whoever emerges from this primary will be bruised, battered and out of touch with Ohioans' values. Again, that is a statement from the Ohio Democratic Party. All right, Columbus City Schools hosted the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, to talk about early childhood education and celebrate Community College Month. This took place at Avondale Elementary School on Hawks Avenue. During the secretary's visit to our town, he focused on early childhood education programs, discussed family engagement, and then took the secretary to Columbus State Community College to celebrate Community College Month. Boys and girls, I, I could tell that your teacher's working really hard and uh, a paraeducator's working really hard to make sure you're getting those reading skills, right? And you're, you're getting a lot of help with your uh, classmates. Secretary Cardona also met with local leaders to talk about how K-12 through school districts, community colleges, and employers work together to train students to meet growing job needs. Hundreds of high schoolers took part in a 
early graduation. The ceremony was part of the Global Scholars Diploma. It's a three-year program where students pick a worldly issue with a take-action plan on how to change it for the better. Topics range from hunger and poverty to discrimination and domestic violence. There were also projects that focused on mental health among minority populations. It taught me that I'm capable. I think it was one thing where there were many times, whether it was project management, um, challenges through communication, uh, and being kind of a kid, you know, being able to kind of say like, hey, you know, I got to put myself out there and be able to brand myself, you know, so people support this cause as much as I do. I am a STEM girl myself. I'm really interested in engineering, but even with that in mind, I hope to keep this project going and empowering other students to join me as leaders, leading this project within their own school districts and kind of rising up against adversity that they face. The Columbus Council on World Affairs conducts global scholars programs in dozens of cities around central Ohio. There are plans to expand this nationwide. And there you see our great friend Angela Ann, who was the MC for the diploma ceremony. A Columbus children's book author who just launched her second book is helping parents, teachers, and children deal with the issue of bullying. Paula Johnson-Neal is an Ohio State graduate and spent 26 years as a preschool teacher. Her first book, entitled I'm going to have a nice, have a good day, follows a girl who teases and plays practical jokes on her classmate, not realizing she might be bullying them. Her second book, released this past week, is called Breathe, Gabby, Breathe, and helps kids learn how to calm down when they feel stressed. She says teaching children good behavior skills early is the key to prevent bullying in the future. If we want children to be kind, we have to start early on in the early years, teaching social problem-solving skills. You can learn more about this book at 10tv.com slash featured links. And happy reading. Thank you all for joining us today. We wish you a great week, and we'll see you next week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with information about what you can see this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Coming up on Face the State, primary special election is this Tuesday. We'll catch you up on what you need to do to exercise your voting rights. And from cable news chaos to 2024 presidential candidates, 10 TV's Kevin Landers is in studio to talk about presidential politics. And starting with a connection, how one group of neighbors in Westerville is showing support to Ukraine. We'll see you for Face the State at 1130. Coming up next on Columbus Perspective, we'll catch up with Fritz the Night Owl. You must call 811 at least two to three business days before any digging project. So before you do this or this, make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. We are advocates. We are defenders. We are the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Dedicated to the conservation of Earth's precious wildlife. Sea turtles. African penguins. And countless endangered species. See for yourself at aza.org slash join us. I get it. Your desk has been there for you. Holding up your computer, your unused stapler, and that plant you forgot to water. But maybe it's time to leave your desk and spend your lunch break volunteering with Meals on Wheels. Doing Meals on Wheels for me is the joy that I look for at the end of my week. I'll come to the door with one meal and I'll walk away with a full heart. Drop off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at americaletsdolunch.org. That's americaletsdolunch.org. Brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. As we wrap up the hour, again, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Yolanda Harris with a segment she aired during the nightly news this week about Fritz the Night Owl. If you lived in Columbus in the 70s and 80s and were old enough to stay up late, well... You've likely seen an episode or two of Night Owl Theater. It aired right here on 10TV, seven days a week for 17 years, hosted by Fritz the Night Owl. So where is he now? We take a look back and a look ahead. You've climbed the 10TV broadcast tower where you meet your voice of the night, Fritz the Night Owl. There was a time when Fritz the Night Owl was the most recognizable personality in Columbus. The hours I was on for, like, people who were on second shift or nursing mothers, I was their prime time entertainment. Right. And of course, you gotta remember, in those days, there was just four, six, 10, and 28. So it's not like the competition now. It's Saturday night, time to open once again, Fritz the Night Owl's bedtime storybook. As host of Night Owl Theater, which first aired right here on 10 TV from 1974 to 1991, Frederick Fritz Pirenboom became a local star. Now before your very eyes, Dirty Harry becomes Dirty Fritz. He would improvise humorous commentaries in between commercial breaks of classic movies airing overnight. Fritz the Night Owl was an insomniac's best friend. One of the comments I would get so often was, it seems like you're with me saying the things that I would say about the movie or ask about the movie. So. And it was that personal connection that endeared him to viewers. Not to mention those iconic sunglasses, his signature look for which he credits a former 10TV art director. Well, Elton John and everything, the big glasses were popular. And so Dave Wagstaff just, he went to CV, not CV, it was called Revco. I remember. He went to Revco and spun the glass sunglass rack around and found these and took them back, added the horns. The popularity of Night Owl Theater earned Fritz five of his seven Emmys and an appearance in the DC comic The Power of Shazam, helping superheroes save the universe. Nowadays, at 88 years young, Fritz is still doing what he loves. The sunglasses came back out when Night Owl Theater was resuscitated in 2010. Columbus filmmaker Mark Grainer wanted to bring back his childhood hero. So, I mean, if we wanted to, we could put Fritz in a harness and have him fly across the room. Uh, and he was like, pass. <laughs> the reboot is a once-a-month production starring Fritz, just like old times, but with better special effects and movies for a broader audience. So we will be calling. And Grainer tells me he has more plans in the works. 50th anniversary book, we're starting a podcast this year called Conversations with the Owl, where it's just going to be a candid him just telling stories throughout his life, production, everything. Uh, that'll be on YouTube probably end of summer, early fall. So if this movie hosting thing hadn't worked out, what would have become of the Night Owl? He says he probably would have put his secondary education degree from Ohio State to use. So Fritz the Night Owl could have been Fritz the teacher. That's right. But he says there are no regrets. Three adventurers in a passionate quest. I've just been a very lucky guy. Somebody up there likes me. Once again, having taken you where other movie hosts feared to go. 
And in March of 2012, Fritz was inducted into the Horror Host Hall of Fame. But he's not done yet. The reboot is still going strong. Fritz currently records one movie with host bumper segments and vintage commercials per month. And we are going to put a link to his website with all this information for you with this story on TinTV.com. Again, thanks to our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, for that segment. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of the fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.